Shadows and Fog is the 20th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1991. Allen stars as Max Kleinman, returning to being the sole lead for the first time since Broadway Danny Rose in 1984. He lives in a town that resembles old German expressionist films by directors such as Fritz Lang. The dark and foggy town is plagued by a killer. Kleinman has been roped in to search for the killer, but is given little or no facts to work with and is soon left to his own devices. Shadows and Fog is one of the strangest films in Woody Allen's canon. It's a 90-minute black-and-white allegorical play about death and religion. Lucky for Woody Allen that by this point, it had been decades since he had to pitch a film to anyone. So this week, episode 16, we look at 1991's Shadows and Fog. How it was conceived, how it was made, and how it flopped badly. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film first, then come back. Kleinman, what are you doing out at this hour? I'm part of a vigilante committee to, to help catch the maniac. By doing what? Well, I don't exactly know. Woody Allen in the 80s is considered by many to be a golden period, but really, it was mainly the early 80s. By the late 80s, he was still a huge name and a star, but people were settling into his film a shtick, and 1989's Crimes and Misdemeanors aside, had been experiencing a bit of a box office drought. His last film, a return to comic romance in 1990's Alice, didn't do well. So time to mix things up. And mix things up he did. Alan produced a film like nothing he's ever done before or since. The genesis of Shadows and Fog is Alan's own play called Death. It was first published in 1975 in Alan's first collection of writings called Without Feathers. Although it's not included in any of the later complete prose collections, it's actually a little hard to find. I'm not sure why Alan chose to adapt that play in particular, but usually the big motivator for him is just to do something different from his last film, to go from the big radio days to the very small September. And Shadows and Fog is indeed completely different from the colourful, romantic Alice, the film he made before this. Death, the play, is a lovely one-act play and is essentially the heart of Shadows and Fog. The play is written as set in Kew Gardens, a nondescript suburban neighbourhood in Queens, New York. But it's hard to read it now without thinking of the distinctive black and white world of Shadows and Fog. That the play exists gives us a fascinating view into Alan's process, because it's essentially a first draft. It's fascinating to see what Alan has changed and to wonder why. The play of death opens with Kleinman, our main character, who is woken up in the middle of the night by a mob knocking on his door. There's a killer on the loose and he has to help. Over the course of the confusing hunt, he talks to his wife, a doctor, a prostitute, and finally the killer himself. It's all metaphor. The killer is just a MacGuffin. What is really at play here is Alan talking about big themes. Kleinman is confused and wanting answers just like we all do about life. People claim to have a plan, but it's no more certain than there is a meaning to life. The people climbing encounters are metaphors and mouthpieces more than characters. The doctor talks about his work, but they are really discussing science and whether science can truly help us understand human existence. The prostitute gives Alan an outlet to talk about love and passion. These metaphor mouthpieces exist in the film too, but Alan moves them around a bit. In the play, there's no answer to who the killer is or why the killer does what he does. In the end, the killer is fate, or perhaps the death of the title. An undeniable approaching force that everyone has to face. Kleinman in the end is killed by the killer, while the people around him scramble on with their plans. Woody Allen in the late 60s and 70s, when he wrote that play, 
had a political anti-authoritarian edge to his work that is lost along the way. See Bananas or Sleeper, where Alan talks about institutions and groupthink being bullshit. He's less hard on it these days, but he's made plenty of jokes about the church, the government, and anyone who claims to know how people should be living. But Death, the play, is also not sombre or serious, despite the title. It's full of one-liners and has a nice frantic energy. It might be abstract, but it's not dull. People put on productions of the play all the time. What made this idea attractive to Alan was his vision on how to bring this to the screen, how to make it cinematic. And that was to move the setting to Eastern Europe sometime in the past. And it really plays up two key influences on the film. The writings of Franz Kafka and the German expressionist film movement. Franz Kafka was a German-speaking writer in the early 20th century who wrote absurd dark comedies with a healthy dollop of paranoia. He's known for masterpieces like The Metamorphosis, where a man is inexplicably turned into a human-sized bug, or The Trial, where a man is arrested by a distant authority for no apparent reason. Kafka's characters are isolated and suffer under faceless or unknowable forces, much like with Kleiman's plight in Death and Shadows and Fog. This story is definitely Kafka-esque, so Alan set the story in the time of Kafka. The film appears to be set in the early 20th century, and the place of Kafka. There's posters around the circus of the town that suggest that this is Eastern Europe. In fact, Alan had thought that if he made a film version of Death, he would have to go to Europe to do it. That Kafka-esque paranoia runs through the film. There's no answers, and that frustration Kleiman feels reflects the frustration of human existence. Powerful stuff, and not exactly easy to go down with your popcorn. Shadows and Fog opens with a short scene with no dialogue and the killer in shadows killing a person. It sets the mood, but after that we are right into the men knocking on the door in the middle of the night. It's a great way to kick off a story, and it's how the play opens. It's a rush of vertigo and dialogue done very well. It also sets the stage for the rest of the film. I'm coming! I'm coming! For God's sake, Clayman, are you deaf? What do you mean, deaf? What, what's, what's going on? We I, need you to get dressed. What do you get dressed? Why? Don't what play you, ignorant. I was playing ignorant. I was in a deep sleep. We expect the killer to strike again tonight. The killer? What killer? The strangler. What strangler? The maniac, the one who killed Eisler's son and choked Jensen to death with the piano wire. What, Jensen? The, 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 the big night watchman? That's right. Took him from behind. Crept up, got him by the throat. He was blue when we found him. Saliva frozen down the corner of his mouth. Oh, look, I've got to be up early tomorrow for work. Don't so, play so dumb, Climbing. You live on an island. Tonight's a foggy night. He always strikes in the fog. Yeah, but you see, I'm, this is a very busy time for me and my firm. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in competition for a promotion with Simon Carr. Don't so, you so know I'm, no one can walk the streets at night? Well, well you know, I hear And it's not just the streets. The Quilty sisters were killed in their own home because they didn't lock the door. Throats cut from ear to ear. I thought you said he was a strangler. Does it matter how he kills? He's so angry. After this energetic, crowded ensemble piece, Kleiman is left to wander on his own. As with the play, he encounters different people on his journey, but doesn't get any wiser. The film feels like an anthology. We meet characters, and a lot of them we only meet once, and we never see them again. It's one of the faults of the film where it starts as a bit of a murder mystery, but we are never made to feel tense or worry about it. This could be the point, that the killer is a random, ruthless presence, but it doesn't give us anything to hang on to or follow. 
One of the better encounters is when Kleiman spends time with the Doctor, played by Donald Pleasance. He's trying to very matter-of-factly work out evil. He believes that he can take apart a man and dissect him to find the nature of evil. Of course, the metaphor Alan is showing us is science itself, trying to understand the unknowable core that makes us human, a task that is impossible. The Doctor ultimately comes up short and dies no wiser than Kleinman. My interest in all this murder business is entirely scientific. I'm sure, I'm sure. I'm determined to use this opportunity to find out something definitive about the nature of evil. Why is the killer the way he is? Sometimes certain impulses that can drive an insane man to murder inspire others to highly creative ends. Once I have him here, on this table, dismembered and scrutinized in minute detail, then I shall know the answer with certainty to questions that now I can only speculate on. Yeah, but, but it's not possible that under the microscope there's something that you could never see that, that, that what are you implying uh, a spiritual element a soul that lives on after we're dead a god what is constantly mentioned is the plan the men tell Kleiman to follow the plan which is never clear he's thrown onto the street without knowledge if there's a metaphor here and of course there is it's life itself we're thrown onto the streets of life with no understanding of why we are here and what we are to do. It's that sort of film. The only real encounter that gets the blood going for me is when the plan changes. It happens in the play and it's a great moment in the film. It's the film's midpoint, the traditional place in a screenplay where everything's gone wrong. The men have broken off into factions and started killing each other. Then they start using that fascist rhetoric of either you're with us or you're against us. The gang asks for blind faith. Follow the crowd. If you try to stand up or ask a question, you cast suspicion on yourself. It's hard not to think of social media hate mobs and the evils of trending in this day and age. Blindness. We've been looking all over for you. I, I've been wandering around all night in the fog. You know, I'm, so, I'm still waiting for Hacker to tell me what to do. Hacker's dead. The killer got Hacker? Hacker wasn't murdered by the maniac. Well, well who then? Someone from the other faction. What other faction? It's one of we have other factions. A lot of people have their own ideas about how to achieve results. Naturally, there's tension. Miller formed his own group. But so quickly it becomes violent? Hacker asked for it. He was stubborn and hot-headed, despite the fact that his plan wasn't working. You, you, you sound like you didn't agree with him either. I'm with Vogel's group. Who's Vogel? What, 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 since when is there a third group? I told you, there's disagreement on how to handle things. Yeah, but that's the last thing in the world we need is disagreement. You know, we should be pulling Don't together. lecture me, Kleinman. Are you with us or against us? Gee, I don't know. I don't have enough facts to, so I can choose. I, now I, listen, I, Kleinman. You... Lives are at stake. You have to make a choice. But Alan is having one great big kick at fascist groupthink. I think it's very apt that it's the men that are panicked isolating themselves, forming factions, and killing each other. Whereas most of the women in the film are happy, or don't care about the killer, or don't want to know. This film, and Alan, is not particularly sympathetic to the plights and fears of men. Also getting a kicking in the same scene is the psychic Spiro. 
I assume for Alan, it represents all mysticism, the way Alan attacked them in Magic in the Moonlight and plenty of other films. Spiro is totally hateable. He looks evil and Alan does nothing to flatter him. In fact, he cuts to a very small scene where Spiro thanks God for his gift. One final act to take away our sympathy. Here, we've trapped them! Why'd you do it, Kleinman? You killed the doctor. Do what? You're gonna believe this guy from smelling me? Mr. Spiro's uncanny power has never failed him yet. Why would I kill the doctor? Doesn't make sense. The man took out my gallbladder. You know, with my consent, it was completely... Don't expect him to make sense. That's how it is with a psychopath. They can be logical on every point except That's one. Right. Their weakness, their point of insanity. That's right. Climbers always so damn logical. Yeah. This Where is a joke, isn't it? Back. Look, look, we're all we're all reasonable, reasonable, you know, normal, rational people, right? Tell me where you got this. Tell us how you can. Once again, I thank the Lord for the special gift he has seen fit to bestow on me. All that makes it sound very serious, but Shadows and Fog is actually, like the play, full of good humour and one-liners. And whereas the play of death is almost pure anxiety, Alan knew he had to make it broader and more likeable. The result is Alan's funniest film since 1986's Radio Days. And almost all the jokes come from Alan himself, playing Max Kleinman, who is the main part of the story. Alan is playing the role he's played in the 70s, the quick-witted smart Alec. He says funny things and no one laughs. It's just a funny line for the audience. I particularly like the gag about the church, who keeps a list of friends. And when Kleinman gives them money, he's on the list. And when he needs it back, he's quietly erased. It's just a good gag, and there's a good energy to it. And Alan plays it well. Are you Kleinman? Yes, yes, I am. Yes. Yes. Don't forget. Oh, you... Uh, what is it? Why is he putting my name on the list? What You've been warned list? twice. What is now? this list? Could I, could I, might I just ask if I, I have a donation to make? The poor box is in the front. No, this doesn't fit in the poor box. I have, this is... Kleiman, you want me to take you in? No, 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 no. I have $650. $650? Yes, don't worry, it's not stolen. He thinks it's stolen. Where did you get it? It's not, I, I assure you, my friend said that I should donate. Where did your friend get it? I don't think that we have to pry excessively. We humbly accept this token from the faithful. And I think that we know how to show gratitude when someone performs an act of charity. In fact, once you get into the swing of things, the film moves along quite briskly. There's a couple of scenes that don't do much for me. Alan's visit with Olma is fine. It's always nice to see Wallace Shawn, but those scenes don't add up to much. His boss being a pervert is funny, but it's a pretty one-dimensional joke. We never hang around these scenes for very long. Amongst the quick scenes, the metaphor characters, the deep themes, and the cynical humour, there's actually hope in places. Just not always for Kleinman. Kleinman's story takes up most of the film, but we do meet other characters. Notably Ermi, played by Mia Farrow, and The Clown, played by John Malkovich. Neither characters are in the play, which is exclusively about Kleinman. I suspect they were added to give the film a decent runtime. Ermi wants to have a family and The Clown believes art is the most important thing in life. They break up and they go on mostly separate journeys. Ermi finds herself with prostitutes. They are warm, wise and protecting. The prostitutes have such a different energy from the rest of the film. They are seated, leaning back, relaxed and laughing. They also have very few worries. The girls here talk about love in very familiar themes to other Woody Allen films. That love is luck is one. And then Ermie meets the student Jack, played by John Cusack, one of the warmest people in the film and by my count, the only sympathetic male character. 
Jack, unlike all the other men in the film, is not scared of life. He's a creature of pleasure, and he thinks nothing of throwing away money on passion or ending his life. He's likable, possibly the most likable person in the whole film. It helps that the very likable John Cusack is in the role. Hi. I'll give you anything you want. Me? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh no, I'm, I'm just spending the night here. Well, that's all I plan to do. Oh, sorry. I'll give you $20. I'm afraid not. 50. Sorry. 50. Not that I'm not flattered. It's very nice of you. $100. Jack, she's not a professional. $200. Ermi, on her adventure, discovers passion and what it brings to her life. She becomes less needy of others and more caring for herself. And meanwhile, the clown realises that art, and living above everyone else, is not enough. Alan makes him a pompous, womanising asshole. And when he encounters Jack, he realises what he's missed by being stuck up his own backside. You're very young, my friend. Very naive. She dug her nails into my back. I'm sure. And then she yelled, don't stop, don't stop. Yes. And stuck her tongue inside my mouth and wiggled it around. I'm sure it was well worth the $20. 20 Paid her 700 <laughs> Yeah, sure. Tell me another one. I'm afraid you've never made love with a sword swallower. A baby brings the pair together. It's a convenient baby. There is a little bit of a setup. But this whole story is a metaphor anyway, and characters are named The Clown. What is Alan saying here? He's always taken the view that artists are not special, just another job or just another talent. Alan hates pretentiousness, and the fact that he makes the clown pretentious is saying something. Perhaps it's as simple as art can't be everything one needs for a full life and that family plays a role. The clown, of course, has made a full U-turn by the end of the film. He realises that he's undervalued Ermi, and the two characters get something of a happy ending. There's a section of the film where Ermi and Kleinman come together and they travel together. They never become romantic, but you get a sense that if you have to face the darkness, it's better to not face it alone. Their scenes are sweet together, and it's the last time Alan and Farrow would appear on screen together with that warm energy. You see that very bright star off in that direction? Mm-hmm. For all we know, that star could have disappeared a million years ago, and, and, and it's taken the light from it a million years to reach us. Uh, so what are you saying, that that, that that star is not there? That, that it might not be there. Even, even though that I can see it with my own eyes? That's right. That's a very uh, disquieting thought, you know, because when I see something with my own eyes, I like to know that it's, that it's actually there. Because otherwise, you know, a person could, you know, sit down in a chair and break his neck. You know, there were, you, you have to be able to rely on things. It's very, very important. You know, you know who has these thoughts all the time? It's Schultz the tailor. He, he, he thinks that nothing is real at all and, and that everything exists only in the dream of a dog. But, but this is real, isn't it? And beautiful. You just think about it for a minute. And we are with two strangers, and we're out in the night, and it's just so peaceful and quiet. And suddenly there's, there's a little clearing in the fog, and we can see right out there to the stars. D- doesn't this moment just seem perfect? Yes, but, you know, it, it 
passes so quickly. Look, and even now the fog is starting to go back in, and you know everything. Everything's always moving all the time. You know, See, everything's constantly in motion. So, so you know, it's, it's no wonder that I'm, I'm nauseous. My father used to say, "We're all happy if we, if if we only knew it." Then there's the ending. The magician and the whole end sequence is original to the film. The play ends with Clyburn being killed and the search for the killer continues for everyone else, possibly forever. It's very much a downer, despite some witty jokes. Alan leaves us with a happier ending here, and I have to say, a strange one. He bumps into the drunken magician, a character we've never seen before, making the ending seem like a deus ex machina. Clyburn meets the magician who has the ability to break the rules of the film. He does magic tricks like hiding in a mirror that doesn't align to the rules of the film universe as we know it. Which is the point, I guess. It's supposed to be a baffling wow moment. But it's not set up at all. Whenever I watch this film, I get to the magician and it reminds me that the film is about to end. I spend almost no time in the 80 minutes before he turns up thinking about him. The magician is Alan's view of magic itself. That life has no plan, but the only thing that can keep death at bay is some sort of wonder. And it can be cheap, silly wonder. A card trick or light comedy. They make you feel the opposite of death. Wonder makes you feel alive. Armstead, I've decided to accept your offer. Congratulations. Of course, the pay is very low. That's okay. I don't need much money. I just very, need... very low. Yeah, I, I understand that, but it's no, no problem. Perhaps even lower than you might think. I don't care. This is, this is going to be the first time in my life that I can actually do something that I really love. Loaf just makes sure that loaf does not interfere with your duties. No, don't worry, my duties come first. What better way to, to spend the rest of my life than, than to help you with, with all those wonderful illusions of yours? It's true. Everybody loves his illusions. Loves them. They need them. Like they need the air. In the end, the story isn't dark. It's extremely cynical, but it's not without some light that comes through. Alan's view of life isn't terror. It's more exasperation at the madness of it all, in between some lighter moments. There's a lot of serious things that Alan is saying, but he's saying it very broadly. He's taking massive swipes at institutions like the church and the police. But it's probably more accurate to say he's just taking swipes at institutions in general. And his criticisms are not exactly nuanced, and there are no solutions. The hope once again for Alan comes in magic and love. Art is useful and needed, but it's not everything and this interesting new thread for him about family and kids, which we will see more of in the 90s. It's very Woody Allen thematically. It's just dressed up as a 20s German film. One final bit of maddeningness for me is the film's title. I understand that calling a film Death probably wouldn't work. Who wants to see something named Death? Plus, Allen had already made a film called Love and Death. But Shadows and Fog is hardly a title to get excited about. No one actually says the phrase. It's murky and unspecific and gives audiences nothing in terms of what to expect. It couldn't have helped that box office number, but we'll get to all that. Mm, believe me, nothing is more terrifying than attempting to make people laugh and failing. The thing that made Alan's play cinematic was what he wanted to do with the production. Alan had thought Death might be a good film, but he would have to shoot it in Europe. And after he hated making Love and Death in 1975, he didn't really do that. What unlocked the idea for Alan was to do the whole thing in a studio. The dry run for the idea was his own film, 1987's September. We'll get to that film in a later episode, but that was all filmed in the studio, an entire house built within a soundstage. 
This time, Alan would go one bigger, building multiple sets of a town inside and out in a 26,000 square foot space. It would be built at the Kaufman Astoria Studios in Queens, the same place where Alan made September. There has been a studio on that site since the 20s, but most of the big film studios moved to California over the decades. But the Kaufman Astoria Studios had gotten a big facelift in the mid-80s in an effort to compete and start attracting big films again. Alan would go on to shoot dozens of times there, as recently as a rainy day in New York just a few years ago. Alan and his team set out to build what turned out to be the biggest and most expensive studio set ever built in New York. Exterior streets, shops, parts of tunnels, a bridge and more were made and then dressed. In addition to the streets were interior sets, like the doctor's office, the bar, some homes and the circus. Everything would be shot in these sets, nothing would be shot on location. Making it come to life was Santo Laquasto, Alan's longtime production designer. And even though Alan had a little more budget than usual, knowing it was going to be a production-heavy picture, he's still working in the range of a Woody Allen budget. Some figures say that this film cost $14 million. Terminator 2's budget was around $100 million. Even Scorsese's Cape Fear of the same year cost double Shadows and Fog. It only took the production a couple of weeks until they ran out of set in this town that they built. They had to redress existing areas and kept shooting. They managed to get away with it, but not only because of good reasons. This expensive set is covered in the shadows and fog of the title. There's only a couple of scenes where we really marvel at the production design, and even those are shot with so much black that it's hard to see. Alan doesn't shoot many establishing shots, but there are a couple. That Alan doesn't try to show the scale of the set means it doesn't mean much on a story level. When we are on the street, Alan wants us looking at the characters, not the scenery. The background is often not the point, and it never feels big so much as lonely. Was the building of the set just a convenience? Was Alan doing this just so he didn't have to go to Europe and shoot? I think he was definitely exploring studio filmmaking. He's an absolute control freak in this period, and if September is anything to go by, Shooting in studios meant that Alan could do as many takes and reshoots as he liked, no dealing with the councils and redressing locations. On the other hand, Alan has never tried to make a purely studio film again, so either he didn't consider it a success or he scratched that itch and moved on. Sadly, if any behind-the-scenes production photos survived, I've not seen them. I would love to really get a sense of this huge set. Then there was the whole black and white of it all. Black and white was in quick decline in the early 90s, and the use of it was a novelty at best. There were no black and white films in any of the best of 1991 films that I could find. In Celebrity, Alan's 1998 film about fame, which was also black and white, there was a few cracks at a pretentious director who shoots in black and white. I can't help but think Alan was making a joke about the reaction to this film. So why black and white? The reason I imagine is simply because it's how Alan saw it in his head. The Kafkaness and the Eastern Europeanness meant that he saw the film through the lens of the filmmaking of the time, and early 20th century Eastern Europe filmmaking was German Expressionism. German Expressionist cinema came to prominence between the world wars and was notable for its stark use of lighting and extreme perspectives. Classics of the genre include Nosferatu and The Cabinet of Dr Caligari. Probably the most famous director of the era was Fritz Lang with his masterpieces like Metropolis and M. 1931's M, in particular, is all through Shadows and Fog. M is about the hunt for a serial killer in a small, claustrophobic town, all filmed in a studio. Alan, for his part, mentioned F.W. Murnau in a couple of interviews as a key influence. 
Just do a Google image search for any of those films and you can see immediately that distinctive German impressionistic style. Stark black and white with extreme lighting, usually with extreme faces. Of course, for German expressionist cinema, the black and white was a necessity. Colour film was not popularised for decades after that movement. Alan could have shot in a dramatic style in colour, but black and white was how Alan saw the story in his head, and his contract states that he can do whatever the hell he wants. Alan and cinematographer Carlo De Palma spent some time on the set before the actors arrived doing tests. They knew they wanted the film to look like German Expressionist cinema. The costumes and the sets were all made and the question was really how extreme to set the lighting and how much they could stray from reality. They didn't push it to the extremes like in the cabinet of Dr Caligari, but there's lots of wonderful shots of people in strong silhouettes with extreme backlight and great shapes if you were into that sort of thing. The foggy setting, the black and white, and the weird style that nods to a cinema movement 70 years earlier was still not adding up to box office success. Of the other sets, I feel the circus also gets lost. It seems to look great with all the caravans and the big top. There's blurry people in the background and the details don't get to shine. Same with some of the insides of houses. Where we are in a clearer set, usually the interiors, the film looks incredible. Take the scene at the doctor's clinic with Donald Pleasance. The place is so well lit with these big floodlights creating bright whites and deep shadows. Everything is clear and Alan actually dwells on the set decorations. It's a big contrast to the murkiness of the outside world and Alan is likely doing it to make a point. No place would be lit like this in real life. It's the German expressionism demand for extreme contrasts influencing the look. It helps that in the scene the camera is never at eye level. It's always looking down at the actors or looking up at them, adding to that claustrophobic feel, like the camera is trying to find a place to fit. And Alan actually cuts to some of the jars and equipment around the place. We really dwell in this set. It looks magnificent and it's nice to be out of the fog. It's not as detailed, but the pub set and the brothel set are also refreshing. The latter is bright and warm compared to the street. The sharp angles are gone. It's a place with soft furnishings and relaxed with people. This is the point. The doctors, the pub and the brothel are supposed to be a contrast to the cold streets. And when you think about it, it's amazing that they built these whole sets from scratch and not shoot in some existing location. But really, the brothel could have been an existing room and the scene would have been no different. <laughs> wait, wait, the strangest one that I ever had was when I had to make believe it. I was twins. Oh, twins? Man. I've never worked so hard. Well, before. you should have hired the Beckman sisters. They're oh. identical triplet yeah, horse. lost a fortune, though. No, I hear they're on special call to a sultan in Morocco. Well, why would any man want identical whores? Why I mean, want if you're going to hire two or three women, wouldn't you want some variety? The worst was the businessman from Budapest. Oh, oh, His crazy fantasies. Sit <laughs> me out at three in the morning to see if I could buy six pounds of butter. Yeah, but I had to walk him on a leash. <laughs> Let's talk about the big cast. The change for Alan in the 90s was his approach to casting. In the 80s, Alan worked with the same people, Mia Farrow, Diane Weist, and many more. He didn't like working with big stars, even though they all wanted to work with him. By the early 90s, he started to relent, especially because these actors were willing to work for Alan for just a couple of days, get paid union minimums, and have the honour of saying they worked with Woody Allen. The studios loved it because they could add these big names to the cinema marquee. We started seeing it a little in the film that preceded this, 1990's Alice, but this film has some really significant names in small roles. None are more notable than Madonna. She was a global superstar who ruled the 80s with hits everyone knows and albums everyone owns. 
Just a year before this, she released her first greatest hits, The Immaculate Collection, that sold 10 million copies. You probably have a copy. Having truly conquered music, she spent the late 80s and early 90s pursuing an acting career. In 1990, she took a starring role in Dick Tracy, and later in the 90s, she would be wonderful in A League of Their Own and Evita. Starring in a Woody Allen film is a shortcut to critical acceptance in snobby film circles. And that one of the biggest celebrities in the world agreed to work with Allen illustrated his pulling power. So it's a shame that Madonna is utterly wasted in her role as Marie, a member of the circus. She's basically in one scene. And it says a lot that this icon of the 80s would dress up and be in one scene for a Woody Allen film. The audience was too quiet tonight. I felt sorry for you. You're the only one they seem to like. Yeah, but I have my little tricks for seducing. Yes. What are you doing wandering around out here? I was on my way to speak to Danza. Mm. Like Irish whiskey? Uh, yes, but my doctor says it's very bad for my stomach. Mm. It's too bad. Elsewhere, extremely talented actors who front their own films make up small roles and do one thing. Jodie Foster, a big Alan fan, had basically told Alan's people that she would love to work with him. Alan had this small role that would only take a couple of days and she took it. There's not much of her, but when she appears as one of the prostitutes, she is warm and glows on screen, especially in contrast to such a cold film. <laughs> I've, I've never paid for sex in my life. Oh, you just think you haven't. <laughs> for me, the biggest mischance is Lily Tomlin. Tomlin is one of the great female comic talents in cinema and has so much experience in independent cinema, especially with the legendary Robert Altman. She's up there with Elaine May and Diane Keaton. It's a shame that Alan has never given her a role truly worthy of her talents. She gets one wonderful moment to shine when she gives a monologue about love and luck. Well, let's say this guy yeah. <laughs> likes to be sat on. <clears throat> I'm serious. <laughs> and ridden around the room by a naked woman who keeps digging her spurs in this, oh, yeah. into his side. Yeah, Dory. Show her your spurs, Dory. <laughs> what does he do? He meets maybe 50 women, and when he tells them, what do they do? They faint or they laugh? Or both. <laughs> and then they die. Maybe a few good sports, you know, do it just to please him, but sooner or later they say, what the hell is this? I'm riding around on a man's back. <laughs> This is insane. <laughs> and my, my spurs are getting, you know, blunt. <laughs> and then one day, he meets a woman who gets her own erotic pleasure by putting on spurs and, and riding men around. It's a marriage made in heaven, sheer bliss. Eureka. You know, Paul. But what are their chances? Of the others, at least Kathy Bates gets to work with Alan again in Midnight in Paris. Donald Pleasance and Kenneth Mars are memorable as the Doctor and the Magician respectively, but they do one thing and do it briefly. There are other returning players, most of who do one scene and move on as well. Julie Kavner is back and had just started starring in The Simpsons and was about to be a global superstar. Wallace Shawn is here, David Ogden Steers is here, Fred Malamed. There's actually a huge cast. Then there's just some fun cameos. William H. Macy, five years before Fargo, turns up for one line. So does a young John C. Riley. Alan probably cast those two men for the same reason as the rest of the extras. They just had interesting faces. Like he did in Stardust Memories in 1980, it's probably the influence of Federico Fellini, 
who loved to cast these distinctive faces and give them close-ups. All these single scene roles add to the confusion, and that's probably the point. Of the more meaty roles, John Cusack and John Malkovich are both wonderful. Could you get two more contrasting actors? Cusack is warm and charming as usual, and Alan would put him to great use later in Bullets Over Broadway, and Malkovich is perfect as cold and pretentious. Mia Farrow is fine, but isn't given much to do either. Alan casts her as her usual persona as well, kind of needy, but stronger than she comes across. Then there's Alan, who is pretty good as Kleinman, but he doesn't give himself much to do. That's the character. We meet him, and he's immediately at high anxiety and stays there. It's a typical neurotic Woody Allen performance. And he's funny when he needs to be. He's also charming when he needs to be, like at the end when he decides to join the circus. If this film was being made by someone else, you would totally get Alan to play the part. It was absolutely the right decision from an artistic point of view. When Alan started making more films in Europe, he would do the same thing to great effect. But I can't help but think that this alienated audiences who wanted more Hannah and his sisters. In 1991, this was a big change for Alan. They're picking on me. I don't. I didn't do How anything. How do you plead, Kleinman? Not guilty. I plead not guilty. I never did anything in my life to deserve any trouble. If, if anything, I deserve a bonus. Come on, let's get on. The music he chose was the work of Kurt Weill the German composer who straddled orchestrally complex pieces and popular song. He was also active at the time of Fritz Lang and Franz Kafka. All three men knew each other, and Weil and Lang worked together. It all adds to the Eastern European flavour of the film. Interesting that Weil wasn't Alan's first choice, but when he tried it against what he had shot, it worked. And why it works is that it adds much-needed lightness and energy to the film. The film is murky and slow at times. The opening credits features the Cannon Song, a piece from the Three Penny Opera, one of Kurt Weill's masterworks. It's a play with music, essentially a musical, which spawned a couple of hits, notably Mac the Knife. We hear it again several times and it gives the film a bit of liveliness and pep. There's more Weill throughout the film, but no commercial soundtrack was released. I think Orion Pictures had given up on the film. Shadows and Fog was released on the 5th of December 1991. This film ends Alan's run of 11 films with Orion Pictures, and it sure ends it with a whimper. Orion Pictures had been doing well in the 80s, but by the start of the 90s they suffered a series of expensive flops like the Jerry Lee Lewis biopic Great Balls of Fire and the Weird Al Yankovic film UHF. Still, they had a new Woody Allen film. But the executives were horrified when they were finally able to watch the final product. Remember that Alan has total creative control, and the studio doesn't get to see any of the film in progress. Orion saw the film, rightly, as box office poison. How many people want to see a black and white German-influenced abstract period murder mystery with no solution? The answer was not many. Leading up to this film, there was a feeling around Orion and Alan's team that Alan had to star in his films. The last two films where he appeared, Hannah and Her Sisters and Crimes and Misdemeanors, were roaring successes. The failure of this film put a big knife into the heart of that idea. Shadows and Fog made less than $3 million all up. Less than half of Alice, which had already been a bit of a flop, and well below the $18 million made by Crimes and Misdemeanors before that. This was on the back of Alan's most expensive film to date. 
One week after this film was released to a few cinemas in the US, Orion declared it was bankrupt. It was already going that way, so it seems unlikely Shutters and Fog would have saved the company with anything short of any hall numbers. Alan would go to TriStar, run by Mike Metavoy, who worked with Alan at both Orion and United Artists before that. Countries around the world were not falling over themselves to release this film. It wasn't released in some countries until 1992, or in the case of the UK, 1993. By then, Alan and Mia Farrow had broken up, and the public's view on Alan would never be the same. We'll talk about 1992's Husbands and Wives in a future episode, but the breakup of Alan and Farrow meant that Husbands and Wives was hot property, and that film was released in some countries before Shadows and Fog. This film remains a bit of an unloved child in Alan's catalogue. It's so weird and different. Maybe it's no surprise that a film about confusion is a little confusing. I grant a lot of it is deliberate. Even the critics who love Alan didn't really love this one. And these are the people who get the German Expressionist references. It didn't threaten any of the awards of that year. Maybe, just maybe, if this film wasn't coming off a run of mainly serious dramas, people would have given it more time. Or if it wasn't the 11th film in a row he directed with Mia Farrow. I think of Stardust Memories, an equally strange film, and how that came at a time when people still saw Alan as fresh. For all of the dramas in Alan's life in the early 90s, it forced him to go out of his comfort zone, because audiences, I think, thought they had worked Woody Allen out. The film also makes more sense in the context of Alan's entire career. He would make more experimental films like Melinda and Melinda and his European stuff. It's still weird, just not as weird. It's also not very American, and you can feel Alan wanting to run away from mainstream blockbuster romantic comedies and into the arms of independent cinema which he would do successfully in the 90s. Out of context of 1991 in America, there's lots in this film to enjoy. However, nothing about this film really wows me. There's no acting masterclasses here. If Alan was thinking he would be wowing audiences with some grand production, I don't think that quite works either. Some of the shots are gorgeous, but so much of this film is in the shadows and fog of the title. The script has bright moments, but everyone's a cartoon, and I don't get invested in the characters. There's good one-liners, but Alan always has good one-liners. I get that the alienation and broad characters is what Alan is going for, but I don't feel Kafka in the heart either. And Kafka is not exactly popular. I guess this is one for the head. It's clever, and there's more than a few decent laughs. There's something interesting to say, and it sure is an interesting way to say it. But I want films to be more than just interesting. Nothing really hits me emotionally. I don't care or worry about the characters. One of Alan's weaknesses is that he sometimes gets too intellectual, and this is, for my money, the worst example of that. This isn't Alan's worst film, although I often see it near the bottom of most lists. I think Alan made a film close to what he wanted to do, it's just that what he wanted to do was so strange. But in the end, it's oddly familiar too, with Alan's old themes of the godless universe and finding love and luck inside it. I don't find myself visiting this one often, but I like it a little more every time I do. Like Alan has said so many times about existence itself, it's cold, but there are some good bits in it. I feel like my whole life has changed. Me too. Very, very, very unusual. So are you going to be okay? I should be all right. I, I, you know, apart from the fact that, that I'm wanted by a lynch mob and the police are after me and there's a homicidal maniac loose and I'm unemployed, you know, everything else is fine. Some fun facts about Shadows and Fog. The original play of Death was part of a duo. A play called God was also included in Without Feathers. The two are often performed together. Other plays that made the screen include Don't Drink the Water, 
which he made for TV, and The Floating Light Bulb, which he turned into two very different films, Cassandra's Dream and Cafe Society. Bananas took elements from one of his own short stories, Viva Vargas. This was Alan's last film with Orion Pictures. They did shut down, but they actually tried to keep Alan. As companies do, the bankruptcy was a bit of a business move and Orion were willing to even let Alan go elsewhere for a film or two and invite him back, which is how Alan ended up with TriStar on such a short deal. But by the time Orion was back and running, Alan had started working for Sweetland Films. He made 11 films for Orion in the end and it remains the longest run for Alan at a single studio and it's hard to see how it can be beat at this point. And finally, this wasn't the only weird Kafka film released in 1991. Kafka, the film, was directed by Steven Soderbergh and it was his second film after Sex, Lies and Videotape almost a decade before he truly emerged with films like Aaron Brockovich. It's that weird thing like Armageddon and Deep Impact that two films that are almost the same were released in the same year. In fact, Soderbergh's Kafka was released less than a month before Shadows and Fog. Soderbergh's Kafka took the life of Franz Kafka, or at least a character named Franz Kafka, and put him in a paranoid murder mystery with no answers. And yes, it's in black and white and set in early 20th century Eastern Europe. It also bombed badly at the box office. Thanks for listening to this episode. What do you think of Shadows and Fog? Was that film exec who called it Poison, right? Misunderstood masterpiece? Pretentious mess? Let me know your thoughts at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. If you get to this point, you know that this is where I talk about ways to support this podcast. But it's actually a podcast and a website, which I have been running for 10 years this year. And over the 10 years of intense research and following everything Alan's done, I decided to put everything into a book a few years ago. And those books became so big that they are now three books. They are called the Woody Allen Film Guides. They are real throwbacks to books I used to see for sci-fi classics where they broke down every scene and reference. The Woody Allen Film Guides do the same. They tell the story of every film, just like this podcast does, but it gets into way more detail. I break down every scene, every location, every music cue, every car model, and so much more. I try to find every art reference, and if I have it, information on the paintings on the walls and the books that characters are reading, and so much more. For films like Annie Hall, I round up every known deleted scene. I report on everyone who auditioned for a role and missed out, or who had scenes cut. And there's hundreds and hundreds of quotes from people who have worked with Alan, from actors to key crew to obscure things I found on blogs. It's basically 10 years of work, and if you like this podcast, you'll like the books. You can buy them on Amazon as an ebook or as a physical paperback. And if you buy them, please review them. Links are in the description below. So yeah, the Woody Allen Film Guides. That's the way to support me, and that's what I'm talking about this week. But there's more ways to support this podcast and website. Like everyone, I have a Patreon. Patreon subscribers actually get digital versions of the books for free. There's also Buy Me A Coffee, essentially a digital tip jar. Thanks to the people who bought me coffees this week. You can also buy some of the podcast artwork on various things like tote bags. Links for all this stuff and more in the description. Otherwise, the important thing is to spread the word. Tell a friend. Let a film friend know this podcast exists. Keep the conversation alive. You can follow me on social media everywhere on at Woody Allen Pages. There's also the website, WoodyAllenPages.com. And hey, a quick plug for the Woody Allen subreddit. 
some nice Woody Allen conversation on there if you want to have a chat. It's actually a good place, not too toxic compared to Twitter or Facebook or wherever. Next week, we look at a film that is my personal all-time favourite Woody Allen film. Thanks for listening. I, I, so, so when you have the sword down your throat, uh, you, what, what happens if you, if you get hiccups?